0: We're going to look at three simple passages tonight, gospel passages. We're going to talk about a gospel-shaped marriage, cruciform couples. If you were to ask me what the number one biggest problem in Christian marriages is today, I would not say it's one of the big three that are often written about by many Christian authors, and that would be money, sex, power. It's not even communication, as important as that is, and how troublesome many times in marriages when I counsel people, all of these things are, but I would tell you that these problems are only expressions of the problem. Those things, money, sex, power, communication, and otherwise, are usually confronted by some new technique or tool but never really get to the bottom of the problem. They never really, they offer cures without solving causes. And Christians' marriage today, I would say, the biggest problem is that they are culture-shaped and not cross-shaped. And by that I mean this, that we have, by and large, even in our Christian circles, we have taken the cross out of our marriages and replaced it with culture, and you know as well as I do, that these two things, culture and cross, are worlds apart. And unfortunately, they also become worlds apart in our marriages. The bottom line, if you can hear tonight and have ears to hear, the bottom line is in our marriages, relationship problems are discipleship problems. Let me say it again. In our marriages, relationship problems are discipleship problems. We have raised a generation of young Christians, and even older ones, who follow culture more than they follow Christ, because they love that more, because there is no cross, and there is no Christ in culture, and we find ourselves easily moving that way because of it. That's why my wife and I started a D group of couples because we need to confront the issues and the problems the main ones the root causes that are taking place in our marriage today i don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we've pushed the gospel to the periphery of our lives and even to the margins of our marriages instead of having it the vibrant center of everything that it deserves the gospel we often tout is powerful enough to save our souls But we don't believe, not at least functionally, that it is powerful enough to save our marriages. It is powerful enough to get us into heaven, but it's not powerful enough to get heaven into us. And so our marriages suffer because of it. And may I say, and I'm going to get a little more pointed, as a result of this, we now seek answers and wisdom about our problems in marriage from our culture because that's the shape that we've taken in our marriages The cross is no longer part of the solution, even for many children of God who say they believe in the inspiration and errancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Theology, by and large, has been replaced by therapy. And the first place we turn for our marital problems to be solved is not the cross, but the couch. And by that, I mean secular psychology. Pastors who used to be considered the experts in solving our marital problems have been replaced by secular psychologists and psychiatrists who now prescribe medication over meditation in the Word. The new power to overcome our marital problems and life struggles is no longer God-centered, but man-centered. An interesting book that I have read by Ava Moskowitz in her book called in Therapy We Trust, says this. She says that the biblical gospel has been turned into a therapeutic gospel where personal happiness, hear me, personal happiness is our supreme goal. Everything she writes in life, character, sacrifice, morality, is held as valuable only to the extent that it makes us happy. Success, she writes in the final analysis, must be measured with a psychological yardstick. In other words, we only do right, we only act right, privately or even at times publicly, we only do that if it will further our ultimate cause to be happy at all costs. She goes on to say, our therapeutic, culturized faith is the belief that all of our problems stem from psychological ones. All of this therapeutic gospel leads to, pretty astounding insight, therapeutic God. The God who exists, listen to this, and to be there to help us, above all else, to make us happy. Her conclusion is this, we are obsessed with self-fulfillment, that's why we need discipleship, I would tell you. We need discipleship at the earliest stages of life. We need people to get it down in their lives that they are not husbands and wives first. They are followers of Jesus first. I was impressed by that today because Pastor Dave had a meeting after church, so I was the one in charge of hearing a testimony, which I've heard many, 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 many over the years of their faith in Christ. And today I heard a little second grader whose name was Mia. And I'm going to help Pastor Jim. I want you to know this little girl goes to Faith Christian Academy. Second grade. I think she, April Rowland, maybe her class perhaps. It is the most profound, clear theological testimony I have heard in years. And it was from a girl who's seven You should hear her understanding. She says, baptism is a picture, Pastor Walker, that when Jesus died and went into the grave, we go down under the water, and that represents our death. And it's not just a physical death, Pastor Walker, it is a spiritual death. And that spiritual death makes us alive in Christ. And I want my parents to know that's what I believe. And I go, Woohoo! And Dennis is sitting there, and Mackenzie is sitting there, and we're going like, who is this girl? May her tribe increase, right? To second grader, a second grader, but listen, she's being discipled early, early. What if it was a requirement for our children when they grow up that we measure the marriage possibilities for them and the people that they might date based on the degree to which they follow Jesus? In our Christian circles, they might be single quite a while. A gospel-shaped marriage is a cross-shaped marriage. Marriage, And I would tell you, by and large, if you're struggling with your marriage tonight, I would guess in some way or some form you need to put the cross back in your marriage. So let me tell you this. What does it mean? Let me ask you. What does it mean to take up your cross individually and in doing so take up your cross in your marriage? And so this principle tonight is going to come from a very small and you would say probably somewhat obscure, but I would tell you profound passage that we need to look at tonight is mentioned in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's only really one verse. Turn with Matthew to me to Matthew 27 first. We're going to read all three of them. And I want to show you some simple principles about taking up your cross and cruciform living that you can apply to your marriage tonight. As well, if you're not married, there's a lot to be taken home for you as well. Matthew 27 and verse 32 I'm sorry, yeah, 2732. It reads As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Second one, Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. These are all one verse synopsis of Simon of Cyrene's story. He only gets one verse. Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And then finally, Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away... They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. What you may not be able to see in the English versions that are in the original versions is that in all these three Gospels, the writers are leading us about cruciformity up to these truths. And Jesus, throughout these texts, is telling people about his own cross. They call them passion predictions. And he's telling them ahead of time, when I go to Jerusalem for the last time, they're going to spit on me and beat me, and they're going to do all this stuff, and so forth and so on. And the Bible says, I'm going to show you a clip in just a little bit, that in these three passages, in Matthew 16, in verse 24, it said ahead of the passage I read to you that here's what is true about cruciformity. It's not just a cross for Jesus, it's a cross for all of those who follow him. And in Matthew 26, 20, 16, 24, it uses the same verb as used in the one that I read to you. And that is that you have to take up your cross just like Jesus has to take up his. The same truth with the exact same wording, is used in Mark's take on Simon of Cyrene, carrying Jesus' cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me and you want to really know me, you have to take up your cross like I take up mine. Mark 8, 34. And then later on, we have the story of Simon Cyrene. Same word. He takes up the cross. Luke has the exact same story, but watch this. He does it a little bit differently. He's the only one that changes it. And he changes it, I would tell you, very specifically for a reason. Luke says in Luke 9:23, and he said to all, if anyone would come, watch, this is why every word is inspired. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and watch. Follow me. Luke. And the verse I read you is the only one that says that Simon of Cyrene took and carried Jesus' cross behind him. In other words, Jesus walked on the road ahead of him and he carried Jesus' cross behind him, literally Following him. Do you know why all the verses in Luke leading up to have that? If you want to follow me, get behind me. And when you get behind me, take up your cross. Luke shows that theological truth in literal reality. I want to show you a clip. And I want you to look at it. Because as good in some ways as this film could be, The Passion of the Christ, years ago, they get this part wrong but I want you to see what Simon of Cyrene might have faced. They got a couple things right, but they got a couple of things wrong. One of them is they didn't carry the whole cross. Because like it is today in Israel, wood is sparse. Um, they had what was called a patibulum in Latin. That's what they were speaking. And in Latin, it's the beam. This is the cross beam across there. Anywhere usually between 80 and 100 pounds. That's what Jesus would have. And he would have had it strapped across his back, which would have been totally messed up, as you can imagine, from the flogging and the beating and everything else. So 80 to 100 pounds. And so what would have happened is that he would have fallen on the ground and couldn't go anymore. They would have taken that off of him and put it on to Simon of Cyrene. And according to Luke, Jesus would have walked in front and Simon with the bar or the beam on his shoulders would have followed behind. And I don't think knowing Matthew and Mark put it exactly the same way and Luke changed it so that we would know that. And I think that is because here's what he's saying, is that when you follow Jesus, you literally follow him And take up his cross. I would tell you they need to make a second one. The passion of the Christ should be a sequel to the passion of the Christian. Because his passion is a pattern for ours. It really is. Not because our cross is for redemption. Our cross is for reflection of his redemption and what he's done. All throughout Mark's gospel. In fact, I looked all of them up a dozen times. It describes this. Jesus was handed over over and over. He was handed over to Pilate. He was handed over to Herod. He was handed over by Jewish, Jewish. He was handed over to the religious leaders. Over and over, it's the word for betrayal handed over a dozen times. But when you get to Mark 13, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus tells a prophecy about the future of his disciples. And he uses the same verb, hand it over, not to describe himself, but describe exactly what would happen to them. They are going to hand you over and you will stand in synagogues. They're going to hand you over. And here's what Mark does. Painfully, the Gospels do this. He wants you to know that your life is to be a pattern of Jesus in every way. Your passion is his passion How does that have to do with marriage? Because number one in your life should be your aim as a lifelong process and pattern of following Jesus' cross-shaped life and death. So men, husbands, if you want your wife to follow you and you gripe and complain and get angry when she does not, may I ask you tonight, maybe it's this. If you want your wife to follow you, maybe you better start following Jesus. Maybe if you want your wife to be submissive to you, maybe you should be submissive to the cross and learn what it means to die to yourself. I think what we mean more than anything else in our Christian marriages today is that both disciples, both husband and wife, are disciples who carry the cross in their daily lives. Simon of Cyrene, and you'll find if you read the Gospels closely, That most of the time they don't mention the names of people and stories. And when they do, it's for a reason. Simon of Cyrene must have been known to the early church when they read Mark's gospel. Because it mentions his name. In fact, one of the other gospels says that with him that day, pictured similarly, somewhat accurate. Not one boy, but two. Alexander and Rufus. I thought to myself, here's a guy whose only thing, he gets one verse in Scripture, and the only thing he is known for by name is that he carried the cross of Jesus. Oh, you know what, husbands? How about that? How about that? See, he's got two sons. He's got a wife. I wonder if he was the first cross-carrying husband ever. Dads, husbands, what if the only thing that you're ever known for, not your sports prowess, not how great you were at your job, not how much money you made, not in, what if the number one thing, the only thing you will ever know, your one verse in life that they talk about you is so-and-so, and they say his name. You know what I think about him? I think he carried Jesus' cross throughout his whole life. You should see it in the way that he loved his wife and loved his kids and loved his church. Interestingly, the name Rufus, which was one of his boys, if it's the same guy, was also mentioned at the end of Romans chapter 16 and verse 13. I wonder if his boy knew the Apostle Paul, became prominent in the church, and made a profound impact. And I wonder if, at least in part, conjecture only, it came from being there that day and watching his dad carry Jesus' cross. You know what would radically change your marriage? If you radically became a disciple. Second simple truth, and we're almost done. The Bible verse teaches us that cruciformity must be compelling. The three Gospels, they use different verbs, but the word means compelled. It means one says it seized him. They forced him. You see, normally, if you were condemned to a cross death, you had to take your cross beam and carry it from wherever you started to the place of your execution. Jesus made it partly there and didn't make it the whole way there. So he picked it up from wherever Jesus fell down and couldn't get up. Simon Cyrene passed by, it says. And the soldiers, as you saw in the video, they compelled him. They ordered him and they had By law, Caesar gave them authority that you could compel slaves from other territories to do your menial task. In fact, the same word compel is used in Jesus' view in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 41. And he says, if someone compels you to walk a mile with them, go with them too. And that is the same sort of thing. He's talking about Roman soldiers because they would come by in a very hot day in Palestine heat. And they would tell a Jewish person, I don't care what you're doing, stop right now, pick up my pack filled with all my stuff, and I want you to carry a mile for me to give me a break. And they would have to do it or they could be seriously hurt. And Jesus says to them, I want you to be compelled not to go one mile, like he says, go two. Two miles. Go further, why? Because when you're my disciple, what compels you makes a huge difference. I wonder, I wonder what compels you, husbands and wives, in your marriage. You see, for him, soldiers compelled him. But I think Luke and Mark, Luke would want you to know That Jesus should be the one who compels you. See, he carried Jesus' cross that day because he was compelled by law. But the writers of the Gospels want you to go further. Not because you have to. They want you to be compelled by love. See, that's what Jesus wants in our marriages. He doesn't want husbands and wives who say, well, if I have to. No, because I want to. Better yet, because I love to. Did you hear the video Those who have cruciform love, they love to love. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels me. It moves me. Our prayer should be as husbands and wives, no? We get on our knees every day. We could say, love, may your love, Jesus, compel me to love you more. I want to love you with your love. I want to love my wife with your love, compellingly. Did you read Ephesians 5 really carefully? Because there are five times it is told the husband should love his wife. Five times, because we are thick headed and probably thick hearted. And so here's what Jesus says, and one of them, ready? Paul writes these words So husbands ought to love their wives. It is a ought, not like it's a good idea to brush your teeth three times a day. Not that ought. It's an ought like you better obey the law because if not, you're gonna be pulled over and arrested. That kind of ought. It's not just a good idea, it's what you should do. Where does Paul in Ephesians get that kind of love? He says, as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. That's the kind of love cruciform love is all about. And it is too often, too foreign and concept, and in practice in our marriages. Compelling. Are we compelled? Simon, in all of the Gospels, gets one verse. He did one thing, and he speaks no words. Never speaks a word in the Bible. But he speaks volumes, truthfully, doesn't he? Because the one thing he has... Didn't even need words. See dads, see wives. You don't have to be right. You don't have to win arguments. You don't have to be the first one to have your way. You can speak volumes without words when we love in a cruciform way. See, marriage is a discipleship effort. It is. It's growing as husbands and wives in our cross-shaped discipleship and following Jesus. I'm going to shut down because we're over. I find one more thing compelling in this passage. The end of Mark's gospel, which is unlike all the other gospels in its endings, it's compellingly short and open-ended. And the people come to the tomb and the angel comes and talks to them and says to them, The line we always say, he's not here. You are seeking, and in other ones they say Jesus. Another one says Jesus of Nazareth. Mark's gospel says this, you are seeking, literally in the Greek, the crucified one. See, even after Jesus' resurrection... He is identified not as Jesus, not as Jesus of Nazareth, not as Lord, not as any of those things. His identity is the crucified one. You know what we need more of in our marriages? Crucified ones, cruciform ones. That is our identity, not how great we are at this or how important we are or how we do this and we have this skill and we have... No, let it be that what marks us as husbands and wives, what our identity is above all other things is that we are crucified ones. Those who have crucified ourselves and the affections and lusts based on these passages, In my office, my wife has made a plaque or a big big picture for me actually and it has words on it that I wrote because I try to take this seriously to be my life goal. And I wrote this, I most glorify God the Father when I most exemplify God the Son and I most exemplify God the Son when by God the Spirit I most crucify self. I I want to die Every day. Is it strange for me to close with this? That you know what your marriage needs? A lot more dying. A lot more dying. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are disciples first. Oh, how transforming our marriages would be if both husbands and wives... We're serious, dedicated followers of Jesus who take up, as Luke says, their cross daily and follow you. Oh, Jesus, if that were true, it changes everything. And we can talk about all the other problems and all the expressions of things, but the root of it is we've taken the cross out of our marriage and we're following culture. Help us, Lord. To put the cross back in our marriages, back in our lives, back in our parenting, back in our church, and in everything in our lives, that we might live cross-centered, crucifixion-type lives, shaped by the death of our Lord Jesus. Help us to that end, we pray in his name, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.